Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It was an all-nighter at Queen's Park uh, as they sat for a midnight session to debate Bill 31, which of course is that bill, that now famous bill, to uh, try, attempt to reduce the Toronto's uh, city council size. Uh, there were protests out there. Uh, it was uh, a little crazy inside, of course, the legislature. And, uh, well, it's uh, politics unusual, I guess, is really the best way to describe this. Travis Durange is uh, the Queen's Park Bureau Chief, of course, for Global News, uh, who was there for the whole session. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to uh, paint a picture for us of this. Travis, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Good morning to Yeah, it has been quite the evening slash morning. <laughs> Now, listen, I, I, you've been doing this for a long time, and you're an incredible reporter. You just uh, took over the Queen's Park Bureau Chief a little while ago. Did they tell you that this was going to be like this, that the, the hours were a little wacky? Well, this is my second week at Global, and I'm telling you, <laughs> it has been a wild ride. No, you know, uh, it, last night was unlike anything that I have ever seen uh, at this building, even down at City Hall. There were protesters outside uh, chanting, let us in. I actually was in the press gallery inside the chamber, and I could hear this something going on outside, and then I, I, I listened a little bit closer, and then I heard the chant, so I ran downstairs to see what was going on. There were hundreds of people lined up uh, outside Queen's Park trying to get into the public gallery. Uh, meanwhile, in the public gallery, there were protests as well. So it was a, it was a, a huge scene inside and outside all night long. Well, and, and for those who follow you on Twitter, of course, I know you tweeted a, a, a little video of that just about four hours ago, and uh, it's, it's fascinating because it really gives you a sense of the, really a sense of drama that was going on there last night. Yeah, it certainly was. And, you know, it, it was kind of surreal when I, when I got here. I got here at about 9 o'clock or so, uh, and, you know, there was a couple people kind of milling about the, the front, but nothing like what we saw closer to midnight. I came out afterwards, went up to my office for a, a quick moment, and then uh, I came back down. There was a, uh, a woman dressed up as Cinderella and another woman dressed up as Prince Charming. They had a, a clock waiting to strike midnight, and they had a, a little book with uh, Charter of Rights written on it. They said, well, what are you guys doing here? They're saying, well, we heard about this fairy tale called the Charter of Rights. We believe in it, and we want to see if it still exists uh, after, after midnight. Um, that, that was going on while debate uh, started in the House. Uh, things got pretty ruckus very quickly. As soon as the debate started, uh, former MPP Sherry DeNovo, she stood up and started uh, you know, railing into the Premier and to the PC government saying that this is not what democracy should look like. She quickly got escorted out. Uh, then things were calm for a little bit, and then more protests in the public gallery. And eventually the Speaker had to shut things down uh, and didn't, let anyone else into the public gallery, and obviously that that created a lot of tension outside. Toronto police officers had to be called in, uh, and there were some scuffles. Now, I knew you were expecting protesters. I mean, because we saw that earlier in the week, of course, with some of the folks that uh, that were protesting the uh, the government action here. But the costumes might have been a different twist. This is kind of a combination protest and Rocky Horror Picture Show, wasn't it? Yeah, it certainly was. You know, there were people dressed up in pajamas. They lay down in a, a row at one point, and they're doing some construction here around part of the building, some renovation, so they have some plywood up. And there, were, there was like a row of people who were slamming their feet in pajamas on, on this uh, plywood board, uh, chanting, let us in, uh, you know, uh, notwithstanding, we are standing. So it, it, was, it was something to see for sure. And it went on, I have to say, for hours and hours on end, uh, up until about uh, 6 o'clock in the morning or so. Uh, at one point during the evening, the leader of the official opposition, Andrea Horvath, she actually left the chamber and came outside to address the protesters. Uh, she was quite popular with them, uh, as you would imagine. And she said, you know, uh, I am glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're standing up for democracy. The premier, while all of this was going on, and also while Andrew Horvath was really railing against the, the PCs. He was calm, cool, and collected. He was just kind of milling about the back benches, meeting with people, laughing. Jim Wilson, uh, one of the ministers, was in the, the front uh, reading a paper while all this was going on. So it was quite something to see. Uh, let, let's talk about what happened in there then and, and the reason for this. I mean, quite aside from this, the sideshow that was going on in the front of Queen's Park there, uh, this was obviously to try to move this bill along. You know, as you've reported earlier through the week, Travis, there's been a lot of pushback on this already, and the consensus, the legal consensus, seems to be 
yeah, it might be legal, but it's the wrong thing at the wrong time to do. And 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 as you reported earlier, uh, you know, we've we've had lawyers associations, uh, petitions from lawyers uh, and judicial experts that have weighed in on this right now. Did the government talk about that or address any of that last night? So the government really feels that they are within their legal rights uh, and to you know, a certain degree, their moral right and their political right to, to do this. I mean, Doug Ford didn't specifically campaign on this, but what he is saying is that he campaigned on uh, leaner, efficient government. And this is, you know, one of the, uh, he says that Toronto is really the, the engine that drives the Ontario economy. And so if, if City Hall is not moving efficiently, which he does not think it is, other people would disagree with that, then, then the, the province can't can't run, so he wants to ensure that that happens. You know, a lot of people have questioned whether or not this particular issue is the right issue to invoke uh, the notwithstanding clause, section 33 of the charter. He believes it is, and that opens the door to, you know, the question, can, can it be used again, and will he use it again? He has certainly not shut that door. You, you mentioned about the Premier just kind of uh, going around talking to some of his uh, his backbenchers and, and Jim Wilson, uh, his economic development minister, sitting there reading a newspaper. Uh, th- there's a sense of inevitability here, isn't there, Travis? I mean, they have a majority government. They, they're going through the process of second and third reading. Uh, and, unless something dramatic happens, and that's not likely, this thing's going to pass. And, and I think everyone, uh, everyone on all sides really understands that. I, I think that, you know, the opposition may be, unhappy with it, but they, they are fully aware, and, you know, uh, Ms. Horvath has admitted to this, they don't have a lot of tools at this point. They tried to adjourn the House uh, briefly, uh, and they, they were successful for about a half an hour or so, but of course they don't have majority, so, you know, they, they pushed for adjournment, that did not happen, and, uh, you know, things went till 7 o'clock in the morning. There is a sense of inevitability here, uh, and, and the PCs want to get this done as swiftly and quickly as possible because it's one of the uh, boxes on Mr. Ford's checklist that he wants to check off. And the quicker he can do that, the quicker he can get to other things. And so they're hoping that they can vote on this either Thursday or this coming Monday. By the way, it may sound like a, a small point, but it's something that's been nagging at me, and I've been trying to go over some of the stuff that you've been filing and, and they've been talking about on, on, on Global over the weekend. Uh, has the government actually explained how a smaller uh, city council is actually going to be more efficient? I mean, I know the numbers are going to be smaller, but that's something that the premier has been hammering, and it's, well, it's going to be smaller and more efficient. Uh, uh, I, I'm waiting for an explanation, and I haven't seen one yet. Have you? So he he says, and he's, of course, coming from a business background, and, of course, he was a city councillor, and his, uh, his brother, the late Rob Ford, was the mayor of Toronto. He says that, you know, if you're on a board of directors, you, you, you've got a, a small number of people, and the bigger that board becomes, the more difficult uh, the debate becomes, um, and it's tougher to get uh, any decision made. And so he says from his time at City Hall and from his time in business, he has observed that if you have a leaner, more efficient board or council, decisions get made more quickly. He says there's 25 uh, you know, MPPs for Toronto, there's 25 MPs, there should be 25 city councillors, and he points to, uh, you know, uh, large cities like Los Angeles, who have a small number of councillors, and says things can, can work, uh, you know, as efficiently when you've got a smaller number of councillors. should note, though, that in Los Angeles, uh, you know, the, the councillors there have a large number of staff. In Toronto right now, each city councillor has about three or four staff members. So they will likely cut the size of council and reduce that, but the numbers of staff members that each councillor will have will have to likely increase. Well, and you've talked about that, and I certainly did. I was on Hamilton City Council here, of course, when amalgamation uh, was foisted on, on this city. And, of course, Toronto went through that a couple of years before Hamilton did. And, and that was part of the selling job at that time, if you recall, Travis. Well, it's going to save taxpayers a lot of money. Well, in fact, it ended up costing more. Uh, because, as you say, they've got to they've got to increase staff to try to cover the workload, and uh, then you've got people that are going to take retirements and their buyout packages. It can get into a real financial quagmire. But th- nobody seems to be talking about that in this discussion. He says that this is going to save twenty five million dollars in salaries and and other savings. Uh, you know, the the critics would would. Uh contest that, say that, 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 that there's no real uh, proof to the pudding when it comes to that figure. But, you know, the, the big question that a lot of people have, they, they're not questioning whether or not he has a right to do this and, he, and you know, the, the provincial government can do this. It's the timing of all of it. With the election slated to be for October 22nd, 
um, why is he doing this now? Why did he not wait until the, the, the next election? And the city clerk, for her, her part, you know, she right now is kind of, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, right now they're in the 47 model when this legislation passes. If it passes, they'll be back to 25. And so she's kind of been in flux with that, so much so that she has retained her own lawyer because she's responsible. It's on her to run a fair election. And she doesn't know whether or not she can actually do that for October 22nd. And this is a pretty tight time frame they talked about, though, isn't it? If this bill passes, and, and I heard you reporting earlier that it could be as early as Thursday of this week, uh, they've only got, what, 48 hours to decide whether or not they're going to run in the election and, and in what area they're going to run? Yeah, and, and you know, uh, Jen Hollett, who is a former NDP uh, uh, NDPer, and also she used to be with Twitter Canada, she was here is also a much music DJ way back in the day. She was here, and, and she's one of uh, a couple of uh, candidates right now that are not registered to run in the 25-ward election. She's registered to run in the 47, and so, uh, you know, she's kind of in limbo right now, doesn't know whether or not she's going to be able to run, because uh, the, the, the deadline for that, to sign up for the 25, I think was the, the 14th, and now, of course, we're going to pass that day, possibly, um, and so where does that leave things? So there's a lot of question marks. There's a lot of people that are in limbo right now. Um, but uh, Doug Ford, the premier, he is set on doing this, and uh, you're likely not to see him uh, really turn back on that at all, despite the protests and despite all the theatrics that we saw here last night. Travis, are there any other uh, parliamentary tricks that, that the opposition can pull here to try to delay this? Uh, I, I, I mean, I, as you know, I know they tried to adjourn last night, and that obviously created a bit of a debate, but that was only about a half hour, 40 minutes, I think, as you as you were talking about. But uh, and, any other tactics they can do to try to, to move this thing forward and, and, and maybe miss that deadline? Any other tricks in the bag? There, there's not much left in the bag. You know, they've tried all of the legislative tools that they've got at this point, um, you know, you saw last week, I guess it was at this point, and kind of time is uh, kind of blurring all together for me. Um, but, you know, you saw the NDP slamming their, their, their uh, desks and uh, getting kicked out one by one. That was one tactic. And then, of course, the adjournment today for a little while. But really, they, they, they can't do a whole lot. Um, the other thing, I think we talked about this when I was on with you the other day, uh, is that all the leaders of the main parties are, are leaving either tonight or tomorrow morning to go down to the Chatham-Kent area for this plowing match, which is a bit surreal to some people that they're going to do that while this major issue, which is a huge priority for the government, at least to say it is, um, is before them, and they're they're going to uh, hop on tractors. But they, you know, they they also uh, are cognizant of the fact that they they can't alienate uh, folks in rural communities in this province, and so they want to do that. Uh, not only because they want to talk to some of those folks, but for, for the optics of it as well. That's rather bizarre, and I know for people that have lived in urban areas, they may not be able to relate to that, but it was it is one of the things that I found rather interesting about this whole thing, that they're not looking at the deadline about whether or not this is going to be convenient for people running in the Toronto elections. It's, hey, we have to get down there for that plowing match. But you're right, traditionally, <laughs> it's been a photo op for all the party leaders, and it is a big deal in, in southwestern Ontario. Yeah, and I don't think they want to break with tradition because I think that, you know, some of the rural voters might look at that and say, okay, uh, you know, city business, these city slickers are taking over, um, and we have legitimate concerns as well, and this is one of the opportunities where we get to meet with the leaders, we get to, to talk to them one-on-one about our concerns uh, and, and have a little fun as well. So I think it's important to the folks in that community, and it's also clearly important to the leaders uh, of all these parties uh, to, to get down there. But certainly we did put that question to uh, each of the leaders, and, you know, they're all kind of pointing to the others and saying, well, you know, the NDP want to go, and the Liberals want to go, and and the NDP are saying, vice versa, that the PCs want to go down. You, an all-nighter again, and, and boy, this is this has been bizarre for just about everybody. You've just about had time after all the reports you've been filing on, on Global Stations and on uh, the Global Morning Show. What do you get, time to change your shirt, grab a quick breakfast? Because these guys are back to work later this morning, aren't they? No, n- not quite yet. And what time is it here right now? It's 9.22. They're back at it in about an hour or so for question period. I just got off the phone with uh, the Director of Communications for the Premier. I said, is Mr. Ford actually going to be there or is he going to be napping? Uh, he is going to be in question period, apparently, and so is the leader of the opposition. So 
uh, they, they probably grabbed a quick coffee, a shower, and they are they are back at it. The House is going to adjourn, though, likely at, at 2 o'clock this afternoon so folks can get down to the Chatham-Kent area. I actually am going to be going. I'm getting up bright and early tomorrow morning, 5 a.m., to head down there to cover that. Well, and you'll be covering the question period as well, so I'm going to let you go and get that change, your shirt, and a, and a quick breakfast. Travis, thanks as always. Great reporting all through the night. I appreciate the time today. Anytime, Bill. Appreciate Take care. It. Travis Dowrange, of course, the Queen's Park Bureau Chief with Global News. Very, very weird stuff going on at Queen's Park. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. That was the sound last night outside Queen's Park with protesters chanting, let us in, let us in. Well, they didn't. And uh, inside the legislature, Premier Ford was relentless. We are proving that we are here for the people, that we will do whatever it takes to get the job done. We will do whatever it takes to deliver better transit, to fix housing, to make sure we don't have a housing crisis, and make sure we take care of the crumbling infrastructure right underneath our feet. Uh, Premier Doug Ford, last night in the legislature, one of the other quotes, of course, he says he is listening to the people. Well, he apparently wasn't listening to the people that were outside or inside the legislature last night. One of those was a former NDP MPP, Sherry DeNovo, who was uh, in the Queen's Park Gallery last night until she was escorted out. And Sherry DeNovo joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Sherry, thank you so much for the time. It's uh, good to have you with us today. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Bill. Let me ask you about about what you saw going on in there last night and uh, and your reaction, which obviously was a very emotional time. Yes. Uh, well, what I said in my comments was that it really is a moral imperative right now for Ontarians to stand up. Uh, really, what we're standing up for is the rule of law and basic democratic freedoms. That's what the notwithstanding clause is attacking. Uh, and, you know, it, I, I argue it's not progressive and it's not conservative even. This is the, the, the worst of big bully government being uh, in evidence here at Queen's Park. He wasn't elected on this, and uh, they're wasting millions of taxpayers' dollars. Um, th- this isn't even their principles they're standing on. You've been active in Toronto politics, Sherry, for a long time, even before you were elected to the legislature. And, of course, when there, you represented a downtown riding. What, what are you hearing from the people? I mean, you know, to, to listen to the government side of this, this is exactly what the people of Toronto wanted. I, I'm, I'm not seeing a whole lot of that. No, that's absolute nonsense. Uh, this is not what the people of Toronto wanted. Um, more to the point, it's going to throw the, the people of Toronto and its government into chaos. I mean, if they lose on appeal tomorrow, um, because the government, again, is spending millions appealing a court ruling, um, then any decision the City of Toronto makes will be up for question and legal challenge. It literally will be uh, run from Queen's Park. I, I guess that's really what Mr. Ford is about with this. The other really dangerous precedent here is that using the notwithstanding clause, by the way, 80 law professors wrote a letter saying shouldn't have done it, um, but using this just opens the door for every other premier across Canada doing the same thing. Um, it would literally render our charter meaningless, and that's the basis for a democracy, that the section that he's notwithstanding is about personal freedoms. We are, and, and I want you to talk about uh, the, this idea, that, again, that one of the accusations that this is just a partisan issue. I mean, uh, the NDP are just being the NDP. Uh, I've seen some of the response and some of the reaction and some of the people that are outraged by this, by the way, including uh, the Attorney General's father, Brian Mulroney, a former Prime Minister, uh, Bill Davis, one of the most esteemed mm-hmm. premiers in this province's history, and, and the list goes on. I, there was a great op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail on uh, Friday, of course, from Murray Hainan, of course, uh, the very uh, famous lawyer now, uh, who wrote a piece. And, and the essence of all of their comments, Sherry, seems to be we're supposed to be a country of laws. And, and yes, you can govern if, if with a majority government within the context of those laws. That's a fact that seems to be forgotten here. Uh, absolutely. I mean, th- this is this is the basis, the bedrock of our democracy. Uh, yes, you know, uh, governments pass legislation, but it's tested in the courts, and the courts enact that or don't that legislation and uh, challenge it or don't. That's uh, that's the checks and balances of democracy. And really, what you're seeing here is Doug saying, um, "I'm ruling for th- you know three million people approximately, and ignoring the other ten million in the province of Ontario and their rights and freedoms, and." Ign- 
ignoring the courts. The courts don't have any role, is basically what he's saying. You know, if, and by the way, he did not get a majority of the voters. Um, that's because of our first-past-the-post system. So again, for a minority of people who voted for him, um, he's acting as if this gives him carte blanche to do anything he wants, including trample the basic tenets of democracy. I was sitting in the stands with somebody, and he said, you know, my parents uh, were immigrants here, and they had numbers on their arms. He said, you know, uh, he said not to be dramatic about it, but he said it's a moral imperative when governments uh, act as if they can do anything they want. And uh, again, that's the sentiment that was being expressed in the stands last night. Well, and, and this is without precedent as far as I can see, and and because uh, there have been governments that have actually run headfirst into the law, and they've respected that. I mean, I used the example last week, Sherry, of, of the Harper government with, with their get-tough-on-crime legislation of, that they packed into a lot of those omnibus bills. Well, as time went on, of course, the Supreme Court overruled and threw out just about all of them. The government at the day did not go back and say, well, to heck with you guys. They didn't do that. They respected the law, even though it seemed to, to clash with their agenda. You would have expected that same respect here. Absolutely, and, and what makes it even more hypocritical is it's the Ford government themselves that are challenging the federal uh, carbon tax, and they're doing it in the courts. So they themselves are using the courts to challenge legislation. I mean, I, I, again, and then they're saying that they shouldn't be governed by the same thing that they're actually doing. Um, so, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to this. This is a grudge match. I mean, you know, I, what, what is going to satisfy um, uh, Doug Ford? I, you know, he clearly wanted to be mayor. Um, I, I don't get it, and neither do Torontonians. And, again, we're looking at an election, you know, in, in a matter of, of weeks um, at, at the clerks uh, at the city council, you know, can barely keep on top of this. Um, so again, chaos, uh, division, huge amounts of money being spent, and uh, contrary to what he said, no infrastructure being built, no transit coming our way, um, nurses being laid off, by the way, uh, cuts to our, our school system. That's what we're seeing. And uh, it, it's reminiscent of Mike Harris, and even Mike Harris would not have uh, invoked the notwithstanding clause. But but with this move, and which uh, we'll talk about the inevitability of that in a second, if you could, Sherry. Uh, but with also the announcement that, that Mr. Ford has made a little while ago that uh, that the transit system in Toronto is probably going to be run by the government, by the provincial government. Is there a sense right now that the city of Toronto is going to be run from Queens Park, not from City Hall? <laughs> well, that seems to be where we're headed. And again, um, you know, it used to be that the province of Ontario has paid for 50% of the operating cost of Toronto t- Transit. That's no longer the case. Now, is he, is he going to step up and do that? I think Torontonians would cheer if uh, the provincial government put some money into uh, Toronto Transit. Uh, but that's not what it sounds like. What it sounds like is he just wants to be mayor. And, you know, he had that chance, and the people said, no. <laughs> What I'm looking for, and, and, and I served on uh, Hamilton Council here for nine years, I went through amalgamation, still have the scars, as, as many <laughs> yeah. others do from that, uh, is justification. Uh, because we got the same song, Sherry, back in, in the late 1990s when the Harris government said, we're going to amalgamate you, and it's going to save millions and millions of dollars. Well, it didn't. As a matter of fact, it ended up costing us an awful lot more money. You saw the same thing in Toronto when they went through their amalgamation. So what I would expect as a taxpayer to see here is, show me where the savings are going to be. And I haven't heard that. I've heard him throw a number out there that's saying Toronto's going to save X millions of dollars, but I haven't seen the paperwork on it. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, this is not going to save money. He's spending millions in the courts. Whatever money he's he's going to save, he's spending uh, on lawyers' fees. Um, you know, it's that's an absurd argument, and it's very clearly not the reason behind this. The other thing that's going to be a side uh, a byproduct of all of this, of course, is that you know, right now, uh, p- particularly where I sit, our churches at Spadina and Bloor, we're in the heart of development country. So, I mean, our city councillors can barely keep up. We're adding sixty-five thousand new people to downtown Toronto every year. They can barely keep up with development, uh, you know, the, the process of development. So this is going to put them completely behind. So it really is a carte blanche to developers because uh, there's going to be no time to, you know, have community meetings, to put up any kind of oversight at all. I mean, that's the other thing that's going to happen here. So um, so that's sad. And uh, and again, we, you know, um, those of us who've, who've fought at the OMB for for various things over the years, uh, would like to see some checks and balances on that as well. What about the accusation that Toronto Council is broken? 
Well, again, uh, you know, uh, on what basis? I mean, we've added seats uh, to the to Queens Park uh, that he didn't object to. <laughs> interestingly enough, I mean, wh- how would he feel if you know the federal government stepped in and halved the number of seats at Queens Park? I mean, would uh, on the basis of efficiency? And of course, it, you know, that would save way more money than having the numbers of seats uh, on the city of uh, Toronto. Um, so again, this is this is absurd. This is him um, trying to be bully uh, premier and mayor at the same time. And uh, again, I know, you know, it's just going to backfire. And the, and the fact that conservatives are scratching their heads over this, and certainly anybody with a libertarian bent, I mean, this is big bully government at its worst. This is the kind of things that they, you know, accuse other governments of doing. They're doing it times 10. Um, uh, and, you know, one of the things I said last night is, you know, uh, this is sad. Uh, you can stand up to him. I know how politics works, and basically the threat over that cabinet's head is, do you want to be in cabinet or not? Um, but that's exactly when ethics and morality is called into to play. You know, are you, are you really, is your, is your political career really worth selling out all your principles? And that's what we're seeing in action. I just wondered, uh, as I was watching this unfold over the last uh, 24 hours, really, uh, as you mentioned, if the shoe were on the other foot, if uh, when Doug Ford was running for Toronto Council, uh, if, Ka- if Kathleen Wynne had simply said, oh, by the way, I'm reducing the size of Toronto Council effective immediately, uh, I can just imagine the outrage, but apparently it's okay if it goes it's the other way around. Absolutely, especially if one of the Fords were going to lose a seat on city council. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's complete chaos, and there's no reason for it to be done so quickly. I mean, had he wanted to do it, um, fair enough. Um, still would have objected to it, but I mean, uh, you know, it could have been done in time for the next election. Why throw this election into chaos? And, again, this notwithstanding clause, I mean, this is truly barbaric. Um, to suspend civil liberties, to be able to change the number of councillors on city council. I mean, next thing we'll, we'll hear, you know, premiers doing it because they want to change garbage collection times. I mean, so again, it just renders meaningless our, our freedoms. I think, I hope the courts have something to say about this. It's, it's a tricky one. It really is a tricky one because that was put into the charter just, you know, as a kind of uh, a bomb to those who didn't want to have anything to do with it. I mean, this is really conservative attack on our charter. And I think as Canadians, if we're concerned about basic rights, we should be very concerned. It's not so much, you know, the content of what this is all about, but that he would invoke this hammer to get it done is really, truly frightening. Well, and, and he's preying on, on some people's misguided ideas. I mean, look, people don't like politicians. We all know that. I've been, I've been there. You were there. Uh, and, and you always get this negative response from people. And, and he's, he's, he's prying into that. But if you look at the numbers, and I know you have, when you look at the ratio of politicians to population in Toronto, uh, there, Toronto is not over overrepresented. As a matter of fact, there's an v- argument to be made that they're underrepresented given the population increases right there. So I'm, I'm still looking for some rationalization here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's part of it. And again, um, as we've both said, it's not going to save any money. It's, this, is a, this is a grudge match he has. And honestly, um, most conservatives I've spoken to uh, who voted for him are scratching their heads. They're saying this is not what we voted for him, especially in the, in, in, you know, the conservative base in uh, rural Ontario. I mean, they're saying, you know, listen, you know, what about us? What about our needs? You know, what about why we sent him there in the first place? I mean, is the cost of their gas gone down? No. Are they getting even a buck of beer? No. You know, uh, what, what about all the campaigns? promises he did make, you know, none of them being fulfilled while he's spending millions of dollars on this, uh, on this chaos. So, um, again, you know, and, and by the way, hinting at breaking his, his province to the municipalities, saying that hmm, maybe Ottawa's next. Um, so every municipality should be very concerned, and every uh, city council, including your own, should be very concerned about this because this is just the first, the thin edge of the wedge on this issue. What what options are open to you at this stage? I mean, I, I, you mentioned the Harris government a few minutes ago, and mm-hmm. there were some things that they enacted or promised that they were going to do that seemed rather draconian. And you remember the protests on the lawn at Queen's Park, and it got pretty messy there, and there yeah. were the unions that protested and so many other groups that protested. Uh, notwithstanding all that, I'm going to use that phrase, uh, <laughs> they did what they wanted anyway, and they, and that they moved forward with that agenda, and, and you know, we still, I, I think, are, are paying a price for that. Uh, yeah. You mentioned the courts. I'm not even sure if the courts want to get involved in this. Certainly the federal government is standing back and watching this. They don't seem to want to dip in at this stage right now, so it, it, is, is there anything left, any tools left in the kit here to try to do something? 
Well, it is unfortunate that the federal government isn't doing more, I have to say that. Um, uh, really just resistance and the courts, and I think you're going to see more and more and more of that, and of course you're going to see more and more. I mean, there will be a permanent campground on the, on the, you know, on the front lawn of Queen's Park at this rate um, for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but um, again, um, one can only appeal at this point to the people who he says are his base and who um, are not supportive of this use of you know, extraneous measures for, for something like the size of C- Toronto City Council um, uh, and, and really just appeal to their principles. And that's all we can do. Um, uh, and, and again, you know, every, every bully has his day and uh, we're, we look at where this is leading and, and hopefully not for a second term uh, south of the border and hopefully that kind of, of bully uh, leadership is, is going to get its comeuppance in, the, in November south of the border. And, you know, ultimately um, voters are, are what's going to fire um, the folk at Queen's Park, um, nobody else. So, so the, the point is just to get through to them and say, you know, this is not what you voted for if you voted for him. Um, this is not the principles. I grew up with conservatives. This is not conservative principles. You know, they're, they're for smaller government, not bigger government, less power, not more power, less taxpayers' dollars spent, not more. Um, and again, uh, certainly the rule of law. None of that we're seeing in the actions at Queen's Park. By the way, we referenced the uh, the Harris government and some of the things mm-hmm. they enacted, including amalgamation on, on both of our cities. Uh, to their credit, I don't think I'd ever be saying this, uh, they did follow due process when they did that. I mean, there were public consultations. There were opportunities for the public to have input into that. You may not have liked the result, and I think they probably had a predetermined idea what they were going to do anyway, but at least they went through the motions. Uh, that didn't happen here. No, and in fact, uh, Greenpeace, who, um, who has, has a lawsuit against the government, has forced them into consultations around the green energy and carbon tax uh, moves that they've made because they broke their own law on that, and they have to, by law in Ontario, um, have consultations. Um, but, you know, I, again, this, this is a government that's going to be in court constantly. That is, that is a fortune. That costs a lot of money. Um, they've already lost, uh, you know, against Tesla, uh, a one court case. Um, we saw them lose another on Bill 5. Um, so, again, at, at some point, the electorate, and I hope the people who voted for him and who funded him, are going to say, enough, enough. What about why you ran and why we voted for you? And we're not seeing any of that. But, uh, but he was outraged last week. You heard his comments last week that he was that so many people were taking him to court uh, on this issue, on the Green Energy Act, on the fair wage policy. And he was just he seemed apoplectic that they would have the audacity to do that. But isn't that what we do in a democracy? We have the well, right to, to, to protest and the right to, to say, I don't think that's right. Absolutely, and it's what he's doing. It's what his government is doing with the federal government on the carbon tax. So he's doing it. So, I mean, again, he's doing it on one hand, criticizing others for doing it on the other. Um, you know, there is, there's no rationale here. Um, uh, you know, there really is no reason. And, you know, even conservative pundits in the press are desperately, you know, clasping at straws to try to justify what he's doing. Um, but at, at the end of the day, you know, we still have the rule of law. Um, we hope. And um, when you start messing with that, you really do start messing with democracy. And that's a nonpartisan statement. I think all parties agree we need justice. We need a, a justice system. Um, and uh, again, um, nonsensical. Um, he's, uh, and, and, it's, and it's sad. I mean, these are colleagues that I used to work with. I, I work with Christine Elliott. I work with these people. Um, I have respect for them. And to see them capitulate on their principles um, you know, that's sad. That's sad. Uh, very quickly, I know we've got to wrap up. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I see how some people, some of the commentators actually, were trying to justify this with the old Shakespearean line, let's kill all the lawyers. Uh, I should remind them that the character that uttered that in that Shakespearean play was uh, looking to take over the country and create anarchy, which is why he wanted the lawyers out of the way. Uh, God help us if we're going down that road. Absolutely, and every dictator and every tyrant has done exactly the same thing. First thing they do is attack the rule of law um, and attack democratic freedoms. So when you see that, wake up, do something. Sherry, thanks as always. Mm. Appreciate the time today. A pleasure. Thank you. Sherry DeNovo, uh, former NDP MPP, who uh, got tossed out of the gallery at Queen's Park uh, because of her concerns about what was going on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Interesting to watch uh, news cycles. Uh, big story uh, to do with uh, the Russia investigation uh, late last week. Uh, much of that obviously was overshadowed with uh, the hurricane coverage, Hurricane Florence, and the impact it was having on the Carolinas. Uh, obviously, for v- valid reasons, but uh, the fallout from the uh, the Paul Manafort situation uh, is uh, well, in many people's minds, significant. On Friday, the former campaign manager for the Donald Trump campaign struck a deal just days before he was supposed to have a second trial. Why, how, and what are they expecting to learn from him? Joining us to talk about this is Claire Finkelstein, Algeron Biddle Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Phil. I was surprised, and I don't know if, uh, if you were or not by this. Uh, Manafort has maintained, first of all, his innocence, of course, but even after convictions on, on previous trials, had said, look, he's never going to roll, he's never going to try to cooperate with these people. What changed his mind? Well, as any seasoned prosecutor knows, when the pressure gets high enough, it's going to happen. And so one had the feeling that uh, Manafort was going to hold out, hold out, hold out, but most prosecutors were betting that there was a point at which he was not going to be able to hold out anymore. And I think when the convictions came in from the Virginia trial, uh, the, he, was, he was facing a significant number of years in prison. He had no assurance of a, of a pardon from Donald Trump because it was a very risky thing for Trump to do. Um, and the evidence uh, started to look very significant against him for his upcoming trial. Uh, the pressure was too much for him to withstand. Now, the White House response to this I, I found fascinating, and uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, of course, the, the press secretary, uh, commented about this and said, well, it's no big deal as far as we're concerned because this has nothing really all to do with it. Because the, to talk about Manafort had always been with his involvement in Ukraine and had nothing to do with that. That's not quite accurate, is it? It's not quite accurate, and of course they're going to spin it that way. Um, this did have uh, an awful lot to do with Ukraine and his consulting for Ukraine, failing to register as a foreign agent, um, creating a bunch of shell companies, moving money around, not, not declaring the money, um, and patterns that Manafort has engaged in for a long time, uh, which he had engaged in previously, uh, many years ago, we, we have recently learned. Um, But it has great implications for the president because Paul Manafort is the first person to roll who was actually present at that 2016 Trump Tower meeting. Uh, And so we may learn an awful lot about now that he's willing to cooperate with uh, Mueller's team. We may learn a lot of things about that meeting as well as other things about the president's uh, engagement with the Russians that we didn't know previously. That's the main significance for for Donald Trump. Well, as, as the trial indicated, even though the charges may have been involved with something he was doing with Ukraine and trying to influence those presidential elections, and there seems to be some significant evidence that that happened, uh, I guess one of the, the subtexts, which may actually turn out to be much more important uh, at this point, Claire, is the, the relationship that he established while he was working in the Ukraine with Russian agencies. Well, that's right, exactly. And so Ukraine was kind of a testing ground for methods that Russia was using to try to influence uh, the popular opinion. Um, And he established um, a very significant relationship with a number of Russians, and we know that his relationship with Oleg Deripaska um, uh, is significant as well. Uh, and so he learned. He learned how to use these Russian disinformation techniques, um, and he was very much sort of in the um, in the pocket uh, of Russian intelligence. And then, uh, not surprisingly, he was the preferred choice to lead Donald Trump's campaign because of his knowledge of those methods. Uh, what we don't know is how much he was in touch with the Russians while he was running that campaign, how much he was potentially um, following their lead, and how much Donald Trump knew about his contact with the Russians while all of that was going on. But I suspect it will now start to be revealed. Well, and again, just to go past some of the comments that have been already on the record from the, from tweets uh, from the president and, and from others within his administration, 
Uh, they seem to be dismissing Manafort. Yeah, he was the campaign manager, but only for a short period of time. So, you know, what, what's the big deal as far as this goes? But I, I'm, I'm going through Bob Woodward's book right now, Claire, as I'm sure you've already read. And uh, he makes the point in, in that book that, uh, that one of the reasons Manafort was dumped from the campaign at some point uh, was for optics more than anything else because they were concerned about uh, what might be found out. And uh, Steve Bannon was the guy that was pulling the strings there. So, I mean, it, it's not always as it appears uh, when you look at, at, at when people were coming and going. There, there's, there was obviously a strategy being developed by Bannon and others at that time. Well, that's right. And he had to be dropped from the campaign because it was discovered that he had received large influxes of cash that he had not declared. Um, from Ukraine as a consultant, and uh, also because he had failed to register his status as a foreign lobbyist. Uh, And so the office just looked too bad. But notice that what he's pled guilty to here, and this is very significant, um, there were a number of, of charges that were dropped, but the charges that remained were conspiracy charges. Uh, And that means that there were other people involved in the conspiracy, and we're not entirely clear what uh, Mueller's team is aware of in terms of who the other individuals in the conspiracy were. Um, So uh, that's something to keep one's eye on as we go forward. We'll start learning the details of that conspiracy and why it was such a powerful charge that finally uh, convinced Manafort to flip. But with that in mind, Claire, uh, is, with Manafort's position in the Trump campaign, is is he one of those big fish that, that people were thinking, you know, hit, that Mueller had to land to try to get some, some key information about this? I mean, everybody keeps trying to refer to this as, well, when's the John Dean moment coming, when somebody actually is going to sit there and say, this is how it, I just can't live with myself anymore, this is the way it's going to be. Is Manafort that guy? No, I don't think he is. I mean, he's He's not doing this because he couldn't live with himself anymore. He's doing this because he was facing many, many years in prison. Um, and, and you can imagine how much Mueller's team has on him, given that he has not only agreed to cooperate with them, but he's agreed to forfeit for uh, enormously uh, wealthy properties um, and a huge uh, amount of cash and assets. He's giving up an awful lot of money uh, in order to make this deal, uh, $46 million in assets. And he has put no limits on the scope of his cooperation. So he's agreed to testify in court if necessary. Uh, He has agreed to tell prosecutors everything he knows. And he is now deemed a fully cooperating witness they must have a lot of information on him. Uh, As I said before, remember that he was part of that 2016 Trump Tower meeting. And what we haven't known and can only guess at is whether or not the president was aware of that meeting, whether or not he was even maybe present at that meeting, or whether or not he was on the phone during that meeting. And if it turns out that he was aware of and involved in some way with that meeting, that would directly implicate the president in a conspiracy to violate campaign finance laws and to accept um, something of benefit from a foreign power. Well, and that's some of the speculation, and you're right. At that point, it is only speculation about what was discussed in that meeting. We certainly know it had nothing to do with uh, Russian adoptions, as they first told us. Uh, uh, Jared Kushner uh, and, and others that were involved in that meeting at that time, and, and we also know, of this, course, that, uh, that Donald Trump was in the building at the time, and whether he was in that particular office or not, uh, uh, may, we may find out. But I, I guess the question everybody's anticipating right now is what can Manafort, Manafort offer at this stage? I mean, uh, we, we don't know. Uh, exactly what his involvement was. I mean, you know, th- there's always the speculation that even when he had to step down as to whether or not he still had his hands in, in what was going on with that operation. Can can he offer a, a, a significant amount of testimony or, or information that, that may open up different avenues for the Mueller investigation? Look, he can offer an enormous amount of testimony that could be damaging to Donald Trump It could be damaging to Jared Kushner, for example, um, as well as Donald Trump Jr. He can, in effect, implicate the whole family if they were indeed uh, involved in what we suspect they were involved in. So, for example, um, he 
will presumably testify and has given information to Mueller already about the details of that meeting. Uh, what was the purpose of the meeting? Who exactly was present at the table? Was Donald Trump on the telephone? Uh, he can also give details about back-channel communications. Uh, we know that Jared Kushner had tried to set up back-channel communications to the Kremlin. Uh, so, you know, what is the nature of those communications? How far did they get in setting those up? And again, how much did Donald Trump know about all this? It could be uh, a very, very significant um, testimony for, uh, for Mueller that would really implicate potentially the whole Trump family. We do know, and, and again, some of this is going to be based on, on what Bob Woodward wrote, but in other books that have written and others that have already come forward with this, uh, that in those days uh, of, of the Trump campaign, uh, Claire, uh, it was not one happy family. I mentioned Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, and, and, and Manafort. Uh, there was a lot of backbiting, a lot of chicanery going on there. So, and once there are cracks in something like that, sometimes I guess the uh, the job of the Mueller investigation is to find out exactly where those cracks are and probe them. Well, correct, and uh, we know that there was a lot of tension between uh, Jared and Ivanka and and Steve Bannon, for example. Um, uh, and we don't know fully how implicated Steve Bannon is in all of this. He's someone who hasn't fully come into public awareness as potentially part of this conspiracy. Um, uh, we know that uh, there have been tensions between members of the family and just about any other uh, outsider who uh, is involved in trying to run the, um, the Trump administration and presumably the Trump campaign as well. Um, so I think that uh, that's correct. We now, however, have an enormous number of cooperating witnesses, people who have uh, pled guilty uh, or have cooperated with investigators. And, and the picture is starting to fill out. When you start hearing the same thing from multiple witnesses, uh, the evidence becomes fairly overwhelming. We then expect that evidence to appear in a report that Robert Mueller will uh, present to Congress. If the testimony from Paul Manafort is significant enough, I think this could be the difference that could tip us into impeachment proceedings. We don't know what Mueller knows, though, do we? I mean, they, they have been very tight-lipped, and, and given the fact that there have been leaks from so many other sources uh, over the last couple of years, really, since this has been going on, uh, are you surprised that, that Mueller's been able to keep a lid on, on the information that they do have? It's very impressive. He runs a very tight ship, uh, unlike the White House, and uh, one can only assume that he is extremely cautious in how he uh, handles information, how he disseminates it, it to his team. Uh, I assume that his team is extremely loyal to him. They are all very, very professional investigators, uh, uh, lawyers, and uh, have handled similar cases before, though obviously not on this scale. Uh, I think he just runs a very, very disciplined operation there. So it doesn't, knowing him from what we know of him, uh, it doesn't entirely surprise me. There are always concerns, and, and it's, it flares up every now and then that uh, that the president or somebody may try to pull the plug on this investigation altogether. Uh, how would how would Robert Mueller try to, to defend something like that? Obviously, I mean, if you pull the plug, you pull the plug. But we've heard some rumors uh, down in the Beltway over the last couple of months that uh, he's actually started to disseminate some of that information to district attorneys in, in other jurisdictions, New York State and places like that, uh, in cases that maybe could be pursued by them. And that would, of course, take them out of the realm of, of, uh, of the, the president's influence when it comes to the judicial system. Correct. And, of course... Um Fortunately or unfortunately, so many of these uh, crimes that were hanging over Manafort's head are financial crimes, and therefore they could be um, the subject of uh, prosecutions by ordinary federal investigators, prosecutors, or even state prosecutors. Uh, but what might Trump do to, to pull the plug? And one has to look very carefully at what the different methods he might adopt would be uh, and to think how Mueller might respond to them. The first thing is, uh, and, and the thing that everyone has been most worried about uh, right now, is that he might try to 
still pardon Paul Manafort. That's mm-hmm. still not out of the question. Uh, a pardon can come at any time, even years after the uh, the crime. So we don't know uh, whether or not he might. He's certainly looking at the option of uh, trying to issue a pardon, and that could halt potentially the cooperation between Manafort and uh, and Mueller's team. So that's one possibility. Then, secondly, of course, he could fire uh, Robert Mueller. He could try to. Um, he could fire Rod Rosenstein, and we've been looking at those possibilities for a long time. Yeah. I still think that those moves are fairly unlikely, given the very obvious obstruction of justice that it would signal. Um, but the pardon possibility is not so remote, and I think that's the most likely way he might try to interfere with this particular witness. Uh, is is it commonly thought here in in, in this legal circles that uh, the the White House would like to see this investigation wrapped up before the midterm elections? Well, you re- might remember that Rudy Giuliani had said that the investigation was going to end on September one. Yeah. that obviously hasn't happened. Uh, they'd like the investigation to go away in whatever form as quickly as possible. They certainly don't want it hanging over their heads during the midterms. However, as between having a report from Robert Mueller come out right before the midterms or have it come out after the midterms, one might think they would rather that he held off and have it come out after the midterms. So the timing on whatever report Mueller may be preparing to issue uh, is a tricky matter, and it's not clear where their preferences might lie as we get closer and closer to the midterms. But I've heard some of the arguments from some of the congressional leaders that say, look, he shouldn't even be doing this during the midterms uh, because of the influence it might have. But uh, this is an investigation into the Trump administration. And, and as one, so I think correctly pointed out, uh, Donald Trump's not on the ballot this November. Uh, so technically, this is fair game. It's absolutely fair game. And of course, it's fair game to look at the congressmen and senators who have been relentlessly supporting him and uh, to look at Republicans who are on the ticket who we expect to continue that support. It's very much, while Donald Trump is not on the ballot this November, uh, how one feels about the administration and about the support that he continues to get in the House and Senate is very much on the ballot. Uh, and it seems like legitimate information that people want to have, ought to have in deciding who they want to support. Uh, it should be interesting developments this week as this rolls on. And as you say, we're obviously watching the White House to see what they're going to do about the Manafort situation. Claire, thanks as always for your uh, insight into this. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Claire Finkelstein, of course, from University of Pennsylvania Law School. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.